Acts chapter 9, uh, if you're uh, getting to where we're going to be this morning. Uh, I think it's interesting when you look at uh, our society, or really just in general, uh, the idea of like an origin story is just really fascinating. Uh, we typically think of it with maybe like uh, like a superhero, uh, or even in like politics, sometimes like these things that these people rise out of, or with a superhero, it's like this event that happened, and this shaped them, and this is how they got their powers or something. Uh, but the idea of an origin story in general is really fascinating. Um, I, I'm, I enjoy history, so I think there's a lot of really cool uh, like historical figures that you look at, and their origin story is like what they came out of is really fascinating. Uh, one of the guys, actually, he's a really fascinating guy to read about some of the stuff that he's uh, written. Um, George Washington Carver, typically called like the father of the peanut. Uh, he was actually born into slavery and had a lot of health issues, uh, and they actually didn't expect him to live past the age of 21. And yet, there's a lot that you could talk about George Washington Carver. He's a really neat guy. Um, but he lived, he actually went on to live to be 79, and he rose to become one of the most influential um, agricultural scientists in history, and actually was one of the most successful inventors of the 20th century as well. Uh, usually people think of like, maybe like Thomas Edison is like the American inventor guy. Um, but actually, you read some stuff from Thomas Edison, and Edison was like, sort of, I don't know, fanboy if that's the right word, but he was like... Like, he was actually a huge fan of George Washington Carver, so a really interesting guy. Uh, he's actually uh, also a very outspoken Christian. He was never shy about his testimony, his relationship with Christ. But again, you go back to this idea of like origin story, like born into slavery, had all these health problems, and then he kind of rises above this and becomes one of the most influential agricultural scientists of the 20th century. It's really like origin story. Uh, and I think the idea of a good origin story really is just fascinating in very, uh, various categories. But when we look at Acts chapter 9, you could, in a sense, call this the origin story of one of the most well-known men in the entire Bible, and that's Paul. Um, it is a story of repentance, of true faith in Christ that produces a real and powerful change in his life. But this is kind of what we're going to focus on this morning when we look at Paul's sort of origin story. And it's actually a story of growth over time. We often read Acts chapter 9, and we think of Paul as someone who basically had an experience, and then he was just totally different, and like his whole life changed. Now, of course, that is true to a certain extent, because he did have an experience on the road to Damascus, which we'll talk about this morning, and where he just has this experience, and then he's like preaching and planting churches, and like, you know, he's just all of a sudden just this totally black and white change. And again, it's true to a certain extent. But what we're looking at this morning is realizing that what we often miss in our glance over these familiar passages is just how long it actually took Paul to become the man that we know him as. Really what we're going to do is walk through, I guess you could call it his conversion story if you don't want to call it an origin story, and we're going to look at who he was briefly and then who he became and making just a few points of application at the end, and we're centering around this idea of being patient with the process of growth in our life. So the two things we're going to circle back, I think the first thing, of course, with Paul that you can't skip over is the, the question of redemption or, or repentance. And have you, like Paul, repented and truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? And if you are redeemed, uh, are you reminding yourself of who you would have been if God hadn't intervened in your life? But secondly, are you faithfully 
and patiently committed to the process of growth and your life as a believer. This is a statement we're going to kind of come back to. When we talk about patience and growth, we practice patience in growth by being consistent. So, oh, I did this for two weeks. I did this for a couple months. Nothing's changed. Uh, The key to growth actually is consistency, and we practice being patient in our growth as a believer by being consistent. So we'll talk about that. Uh, Before we get to Acts 9, though, it's important context is king. If you're in like my adult Bible fellowship, always talk about context because context is important. Uh, Moving up to Acts chapter 9, uh, there are uh, Acts 1 through 8 that cover a lot of really important events that kind of lead to Acts 9. Chapter 1, of course, is the final message of Jesus to his disciples. Uh, he gives, you know, kind of that reminder of the promise of a coming helper. He ascends to heaven. Matthias is picked as the replacement for Judas. So really critical events there. You go to chapter 2, of course, and it's Pentecost, right? The birth of the church. So this is 50 days after Passover. Um, Peter preaches a sermon. The birth of the church, you know, going on with origin story. You talk about the origin story of the church is Acts chapter number two. Uh, The church is made up of these individual believers who have believed and followed, repented before Christ. Uh, And again, the origin story, as we find here, of every true believer is a story of repentance, that Peter's call actually echoes Christ's call throughout his ministry, which was repent and obey. Uh, MacArthur sort of summarized this idea of repentance this way. He said, repentance refers to a change of mind and purpose that turns an individual from sin to God, as Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 1. This is not just a fear of consequences or a fear of judgment, but knowing that the evil of sin must be forsaken and the person and work of Christ totally and singularly embraced. Peter called them at Pentecost to repent, otherwise they would not experience true redemption and Jesus Christ. So that's chapter two, the story of the church, people um, believing. And then you go to Acts three through seven. Um, There's a lot of important events in there. Obviously, we're not going to touch on this morning. But the point basically of three through seven is that the church in Jerusalem is growing. Um, People are repenting and changing. Uh, They're fellowshipping, they're serving, they're sacrificing to meet each other's needs. Um, So there's really growth as a whole, but even growth just in these individuals. However, what we find is that as the church grows, so, uh, so do its enemies. Very early on, what we find in church history is growing opposition to the church. It starts very small. You see in some of these earlier chapters where like Peter and John are arrested and they're basically just threatened and then kick out. But even there, you start to see this sort of progression towards violence where the apostles are arrested a few chapters later. They're beaten and released and sort of this growing um, opposition and violence towards the church. It does start small, but it gets so violent and sort of climaxes, of course, with the martyrdom of Stephen, uh, who was an early church leader we know from Acts 6, but he is often known as the first martyr. Now, Stephen is important because Stephen's uh, martyrdom, being martyred, uh, is actually where we are first introduced to Saul. Now, I do mention this. um, Saul, uh, sometimes we get confused. He never actually had like Saul became Paul. Saul was like his Jewish name, and then Paul was like, you know, the Greek Gentile name. Uh, So they're basically interchangeable. Um, And he actually embraced Paul later in his life because he was just spending so much time in Gentile nations. He's like, even in his own letters, he just calls himself Paul. Um, But just so you know, they're pretty, they're interchangeable. But we're introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8. 
And what we find about him is really, the, as we're introduced, he is what we're going to call the tip of the spear in Jewish-based persecution of these Christians. It's mainly in Jerusalem and some of the surrounding areas, but that's like his role. He's the tip of the spear of the persecution of Christians. Uh, you look at chapter 7, verse 58, we find him uh, like holding people's coats. He's basically enabling people to be a part of stoning Stephen. And actually, if you can look at chapter 8, verses 1 through, or 1 and 2, or 1 and 3, I'm sorry, it gives us a little bit more insight about this time period in Saul's life. Uh, So chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death. And at that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Look at verse 3, as for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. So we find that he, uh, along with other Jewish leaders, celebrate the death of Stephen. And then Saul begins a process of systematically working through Jerusalem and other areas in order to hunt down, attack, and imprison followers of Jesus Christ. Now, what you do a little bit of studying in the timeline of Acts, and this actually takes about four to six months. So this isn't like a week or two of him just going after Christians. For like four to six months in Jerusalem and surrounding areas, all he's doing is hunting for people that are claiming to follow Christ. That's what he's doing. Now, great persecution refers to the assaulting physically and throwing in prison. But verse 3, it says, made havoc. It's a really helpful Greek word uh, that actually describes graphically what Paul was doing in this time frame. The Greek word there for made havoc is actually a word that they would use to describe a person who had been mauled or mangled by a wild animal. So when it says Saul made havoc, he is mauling people who are claiming to follow Christ. It's a graphic description, but again, remember, he is the tip of the spear, and he is hunting down, arresting, attacking, and killing Christians. So as you read these early accounts of Paul, especially in Acts 7 and 8, and then the early part of 9, uh, if you don't know who he is, or if you don't know, I, I guess we should say, who he becomes, he really is the last person that you would expect to be one of the most influential men in the first century church and influential, of course, in getting the gospel around the known world. Everything that we find about him basically says this is a super bad guy, like not just bad guy, like super, super bad guy. Uh, Paul is not the kind of guy that you would want to run into in a dark alley. In fact, I kind of take it another step further. Paul was not a guy that you wanted to run into in the middle of the day in a public place. He was not somebody you wanted to run into at all. He was violent. Uh, He actually describes himself in some of his letters as mad, angry. Later in Acts, he says he was just a vicious, violent, angry, mad person. And he was not somebody you wanted to be around, especially if you were a Christian. So we transition all of that into Acts 9. Saul is seeking to grow his hunting grounds, and he begins moving to further out locations where Christians are popping up. So look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest in Jerusalem and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way or the way, whether they were men or women, 
he might uh, bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So again, Jewish persecution is being led by Saul. Remember, tip of the spear. Uh, And it's centered around Jerusalem. But as the church spreads out and grows, word reaches Jerusalem that the Jews in Damascus are basically having issues with Christians. So these, these issues come up. They sort of call back to Jerusalem and asking for help, basically. So Saul gets permission to go to Damascus and to basically round up these followers. It says of this way or the way. Um, that was sort of an early reference. Remember Christians at Antioch, but that wasn't until like 42 AD. Uh, so initially, Jews would say these followers of the way, like the way of Christ. So he's looking, he's hunting down people that are following the way, as they called it then. So he gets that permission and he takes this entourage to Damascus and his plan was to arrest and bring people for trial and punishment. I want to point this out. This actually is a reference to the trial of Stephen in different ways because remember Stephen, they remember they set up false, uh, false witnesses and they bring him in and the high priest is like, are these things so? And so what you find in Stephen's situation and of course, credit to him, because if he says, no, I didn't blaspheme those things, they're lying. Well, they have witnesses, so he's lying, so they kill him. And if he says, yes, I did do it, I committed blasphemy, then he's telling the truth and they kill him. So Stephen, in this rigged trial, realizes the result is pretty much set. So what am I going to do? I'm going to preach the gospel. Uh, And what you find, though, is these trials or these fake trials is what they were doing. He was, they were arresting people, setting up witnesses, and it didn't matter what you say, you were guilty and you were going to die. So that's what he's doing to all these Christians. And that is his continued plan with the Christians from Damascus. So that's Saul's persecution spreading. But of course, now we find Saul being confronted by God. Look at verses three through nine. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, he's blind, and by, uh, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there, or he was three days uh, without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Now I mentioned... Uh, Acts 26, the scripture reading, uh, that is Paul's account of these events later in his life. Uh, and it's, it is a side note, but remember uh, Saul, remember like we went through uh, the gospel of Mark, Pastor Kenny, and it's like an urgent gospel. Mark is very like action oriented. He just kind of hits the key events. That's what you see Luke doing in Acts. He's just kind of hitting key events. He doesn't really go into a lot of detail. Sometimes he does, but some events he's just, this is kind of the key information you need to know, and he moves on. So I just say it, it's not a contradiction. Paul just gives more details later um, and just fills in some of the, um, some of the wording that was there. Um, but basically he gives us just the key uh, key details of the event. He's confronted and he is taken to Damascus blind uh, and basically waiting for whatever God says next. So Saul is confronted by God while heading to Damascus. Uh, and it's interesting though that in a sense, remember that Paul is a Pharisee. So he is convinced 
that what he's doing is pleasing God. I mean, he is absolutely 100% dedicated. In his mind, this, what I'm doing, I'm attacking and killing these people, this is honoring God. So he's totally convinced of that. And of course, he comes to find out that the one he claimed to be honoring is actually the one that he was attacking. And it totally changes his perspective. A.C. Hervey, uh, he um, kind of described this part of um, Saul's life this way. He said, before we lend ourselves to any cause, before we plunge into any conflict, let us very carefully and devoutly weigh the question of whether we are really right, whether we are being led astray by men's traditions or inherited notions, or maybe just following our own emotional zeal. Not until we have an intelligent assurance that we are in agreement with God should we act with enthusiasm and severity. Else we may be embracing feelings or doing actions which are detrimental to our faith rather than divine and drawing us closer to God. It's kind of a side note, but I do think it's important. We need to be very weary of following things just simply because they sound good. We need to use biblical discernment with social media, with uh, even politics, of course, uh, even supposed teachers or preachers, maybe even authors that we listen to or read. And the whole point is because we do need to check everything with God's word. That actually lines up a lot with what Pastor Kenny talked about two weeks ago in Spiritual Boot Camp, that the Bible is the foundation of our knowledge and wisdom and the choices that we make in life. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart. Why? That I might not sin against thee. Again, this connects to what Kenny talked about two weeks ago when covering Scripture in Spiritual Boot Camp. God's Word is the basis of our wisdom, of our discernment. It is the filter through which we run everything that we're allowing into our lives as a source of influence. And a direct quote from Kenny, so brownie points, a direct quote from that lesson, he said, personal Bible study is critical to growth, which we're talking about this morning, and victory in your daily life as a Christian. It is an absolute necessary in order for you to make wise biblical choices in every area of your life. Uh, and the teens right now, we're going through Second Peter, and his main topic is avoiding deception. And it's fascinating, if you study the book, it all circles around the, you know, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We have a more sure word of prophecy. His whole argument about avoiding deception is circled completely around your knowledge and your pursuit of Christ through the Bible. So really fascinating. But again, remember, Saul is convinced that what he was doing was honoring God. And he finds out, of course, the exact opposite. He was attacking the God that he was claiming to be serving. And we have to be sure that what we're doing, or, or really that we're not being foolish in the same way in different aspects of our own lives. So moving on, Saul now physically, right? He's physically blinded and crippled in that way. Uh, he goes to Damascus with the help of those that are with him. And he's there for three days and he's not eating or drinking. He's basically just waiting and praying. And this is now where we meet a, uh, we would call him a minor figure. But actually, if you study scripture, um, we meet Ananias who played a critical role in the discipleship of Paul in his early life. So look at verses 10 to 18. So Paul blinded goes to Damascus, waiting for three days, not eating food. So he's 
pretty hungry, uh, or at least I'm assuming he was. Um, And then Acts chapter number 9, looking at verse 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints in Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, uh, he was strengthened, and Saul was certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. So Ananias, who was uh, apparently a leader in the church of Damascus, receives a vision from God, and God tells him to go see Saul. Now, I want to point this out because there are people who, for some reason, criticize Ananias in this passage, and I don't really understand it. Because, again, context, okay? The only thing that Ananias knows about this guy is that for about a year, he's been hunting and killing Christians. So in my opinion, I'm like, if you're going to criticize Ananias, I'm probably just going to throw your commentary away. I would call this understandable hesitation. He just wants clarification. God says, hey, remember this guy that's been murdering people for the last year just for being Christians? I want you to go meet him. And Ananias, now to his credit, as soon as God clarifies, what does he do? Without question, he obeys. But he wants, I say, understandable clarification. Just want to be sure the, this, the Saul that everybody's talking about, that we know he was coming here to hunt us and kill us, throw us in jail, that guy. And God says, yes, I've got a big plan for him. And what does Ananias do? Yes, sir. <laughs> so you can criticize him. I don't know why, but he does obey and he seeks for, I'm going to just call it understandable, uh, understandable clarification. He goes to Saul, prays over him. Saul is healed of his blindness immediately. Um, and he gets up and is immediately baptized, which we know from, uh, from obviously the sermons of Christ, but even what Peter preached in Pentecost. Um, it was just a true sign of repentance to, to the Damascus church, uh, his first step of obedience. So he believes, has this interaction with Ananias, and to show the church in Damascus that he really has given his life to Christ, he follows in believers' baptism. Uh, And as you study actually passages like Acts 22, um, Paul actually references Ananias uh, as playing a key role in discipling um, Paul early on in his life. 
Now, we go to this idea, um, Saul preaching the gospel next. Uh, look at verse 19 to 22. So, and when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Now, I point this out. Uh, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is get a snack um, because he hasn't eaten in three days and then he gets a snack and then he goes. Don't quote me on that. Um, but sometimes it can be helpful. I know my wife would agree with that. Sometimes if I'm a little cranky, she's like, when was the last time you ate? And I'm like, this is a couple hours ago. I probably need a snack. Uh, so he gets food, so that's important. Uh, gets the sustenance, the strength. And then was Paul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither? He came for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. So Paul joins the way that he had previously hated and persecuted. The Jews, of course, thinking that he was coming to persecute and arrest, are baffled to find that he is this, this brutal, vicious man as preaching Christ. You can imagine how blindsided some of these Jews were because they're thinking, this guy, I mean, he is, he gets things done. He's going to sweep the floor, get this Christian problem out of here. You know, like they're ready for him to be here. And then he's only been there for less than a week. And he's like preaching the same message that the people that they hate. And they're like, uh, this is something, did like, did somebody change? Like, I mean, they're totally baffled at this situation because this is not the Paul that they were expecting. And so uh, he joins the way and this previously brutal, vicious man is someone preaching Christ and everyone's just totally thrown off. Now, this is where I'm going to tie in. We got to kind of circle back a little bit. Remember, we kind of said the focal point this morning is about growth, the process of growth, being patient in our growth. Because a lot of you are hearing some of this and you're like, I know the story of Paul. Get the point. Get to the point. Uh, of course, scripture is important. And even if we're familiar with this, it's always important to go back over it. But it's important to emphasize this process when we look at growth, because pulling it back into it, when we often read, and this is where I say the familiarity sometimes can be a problem, not a problem, but it can create a problem if you're not careful. Familiarity with these passages, sometimes we look at it and we read Luke's summarized version of Paul's early life. And without digging any deeper, we just assume that this is all happening very rapidly. However, if you dig into scripture, you look at Paul, some of the things he says in his letters and actually things that he says later in the book of Acts, what we find is he gives in these details that help clarify some of the time or some of the events that are happening. Paul fills in details later on that, that Luke initially just didn't include. Remember, that's not a problem. Luke is just moving through key events. So this is not an issue or a contradiction. Remember that Luke is just moving rapidly through early church history early on in Acts. So Paul fills in details. For instance, if you study Galatians chapter 1, Paul actually tells us that this time period in Damascus was three years. So we read, if you read this and you just zip through it without digging into other passages, you're thinking like, man, this is like, boom, boom, change, woo, he's preaching, oh, he's got to get out of here, like, da-da-da-da-da. His time in Damascus covered almost three years of his life. So he's in Damascus, and actually in Galatians, he, he's in Damascus, 
And he actually goes south into Arabia for a time, and there's growth and, and discipleship there. And then he actually returns to Damascus and continues his ministry with the church in Damascus there. So he's in Damascus, leaves to Arabia, comes back to Damascus. And we know from Acts 22 that this is covering a period, and Galatians 1 references it as well, um, that this is three years of his life. So he leaves for Arabia, comes back, and then when he comes back, the church is just booming. He's preaching. They're like, I, this is that guy. And so there's a huge ministry, a lot of fruit that's being produced. But of course, as we see in Acts, the Jews are not happy. Okay, uh, He's preaching. The church is growing. Basically, from their perspective, the problem is getting significantly bigger. Uh, and so now look at verse um, 23. And after that many days, so you do see a, a sort of a verbal reference to this time, uh, where many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. So remember, this is three years after his conversion. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the, the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly excuse me, in the, boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. Uh, so that sort of summarizes basically from Damascus into Jerusalem. So after three years, just point that out because we're going to come back to it. After three years, uh, the Jews are seeking to kill him. He escapes and he goes to sort of like Christian headquarters in Jerusalem to kind of meet with the church there and kind of talk with the apostles. So he goes to Jerusalem and initially is rejected by believers there. Now again, I don't understand the criticism of Christians in Jerusalem here. Because remember, him leaving Jerusalem was like praise day. I mean, this is the guy hunting people down. He leaves and they're like, all right, at least we kind of get a break from this. And then he disappears for three years into like semi-nothingness. They hear whispers of Damascus, but he just shows back up and he's like, hey, I'm one of you guys now. Uh, I, again, I would call this understandable hesitation. He's been... Just remember, last time he was in Jerusalem, he's kicking doors in, throwing people in jail. Remember, uh, made havoc like a wild animal, mauling people. That is the Saul that they have in their minds. And I would say, to a certain extent, justifiably, their thought is, what if this is just some scheme for him to infiltrate? What if he's going to get in and then he knows where all our spots are? So they're, they're questioning of it and unsure. But of course, this is where we meet Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, he's one of my uh, favorite Bible characters. If you're looking for somebody to study, Barnabas is a really neat guy. But this is where we find Barnabas, and you see this distinguishing characteristic of him his whole life. He's willing to take people in that other people are rejecting. You see it actually over and over in his testimony. But Barnabas shows up. He takes Paul in, sort of talks with them, and he says, you come with me. I'll, I'll help you out here. So he brings him to the apostles. The apostles are like, hey, this is legit. And then he's just part of the ministry there. It becomes, again, it's a really neat aspect of Barnabas the first time he shows up. But he takes him in. 
the apostles confirm him, and then he gets busy preaching the word in Jerusalem. So, I mean, immediately he's part of it. He's in the temple. He's in the church. He's preaching and teaching. But, of course, as always, um, the Pharisees, sort of that, that corrupt group of, of these uh, Jews, uh, are not, of course, they're not happy about it. Again, important to study other passages. Galatians 1.18 tells us that um, Paul was only in Jerusalem for 15 days. So barely two weeks. He's in Jerusalem and then things, to a certain extent, almost get out of hand. So now look at verse, um, look at verse 29, the second part of 29 to the end. So he's speaking boldly. He's preaching Jesus. He's disputing with the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Which, when the brethren, the Christians and apostles, heard about these people trying to kill him, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So again, similar to what happens in Damascus, they're trying to kill him and the Christians, the apostles actually smuggle him out of Jerusalem. They sort of like ship him up to Caesarea, which is a major port city. And he, they kind of sail up to Tarsus where he was from. Now, you might kind of ask the question, uh, why Tarsus? Of course, he's born there, but the main thing was to get him away from the Jewish leadership um, in Jerusalem that were trying to kill him off. So, of course, the Jerusalem leadership wouldn't have necessarily had power all the way up in Tarsus to, like, convict him. And again, remember, Paul was born there, so he has Roman citizenship. Uh, And so if something did come up, as a Roman citizen, he would have been given benefit of the doubt. So them sending him to Tarsus was strategical in the sense that, obviously, he has a big part to play, which we'll talk about in a minute, in those churches. But it was also as a means of preserving his life, which, again, is a really neat testimony of these Christians, uh, because they could have easily been like, well, I mean, you know, judgment's coming. So after everything you did, you know, but they actually invited him and protected him. So I think that's a little important note there. But again, looking at Paul's timeline, okay? So remember, conversion, three years in Damascus and Arabia. He goes to Jerusalem for about two weeks, so 15 days. And then he's shipped up to Tarsus to kind of help with the churches there. If you study Galatians 1, again, and also Acts 15, it tells us that Saul was involved in helping and growing churches that were in Cilicia and Syria. So those are two sort of like county areas or land areas uh, far, pretty far north of Jerusalem or Israel. So they ship him up there in Galatians 1 and Acts 15. But again, notice this. He's there for eight years. So now we're 11 years into his life as a Christian. Uh, and, and he's there for eight years. And then Acts 11, right? We have Acts 11 with the church in Antioch that was founded in AD 42. About a year or two after Antioch was planted, remember Barnabas from Acts 11? Barnabas goes up to Antioch and he's like, man, this is a really cool ministry. Wait a second. I know who'd be great to help me here. Paul. Because remember, it's been eight years. So he knows about Paul's testimony and helping and growing and discipling all these churches in Cilicia and um, in Syria. So in Acts 11, Barnabas actually goes to Tarsus, finds Paul, and he's like, look, man, we should go to Antioch. I need your help. This is going to be great. And then they go there, right? And they're there for like two years. Now, why is all of that important? Typically, when we think of Paul, we think of like, right, the road to Damascus and then this conversion, da, 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 and then like the first missionary journey, like his missionary journeys. That's what we, but I want you to, again, remember we're talking about growth, patience, patience in growth. 
from the time of his conversion to the time of his first missionary journey is almost 15 years. So when he's converted, he is probably early 30s, maybe mid-30s. When he's doing his first missionary journey, he is in his late 40s, maybe even early 50s. So, I mean, he is, I'm just trying to get you to understand the length of time that has passed, that the time that passed in order for him to become the man that would be the Paul that we know about. So why touch on all of that? His origin story, his conversion, his early ministry work, his travels to Arabia and Damascus for three years. He's in Jerusalem for two weeks. Then he goes to Tarsus, Cilicia, and Syria for eight years. Then he's in Antioch for two years. When we look at Paul and who he was, we often forget the almost 15 years it took for him to become the man that would reach and plant and influence so many churches and write so much of the New Testament. He did not become that man overnight, although, of course, his, his salvation is a moment because he put his faith, he repented before Christ. But his change into the man that we think of didn't happen immediately. But he was committed to the process of growth and committed to growing in his relationship with Christ first, which produced the change over 15 years into the man that we think of when we think of Paul. Again, I say all of that because we do live in a culture that I made this decision and so now everything's different. I did this and everything. Now again, we're not talking about salvation because salvation is, right, you repent and, and put your faith in Christ. It is, in a sense, a moment. But that relationship with Christ grows, and as that grows, that walk grows, your life grows and your life changes. So that's what we're referencing. We're not, please don't, you know, we're not talking about salvation, repentant salvation, boom. But now as a believer, as someone who is a son of God, redeemed by God's work on the cross, the process of growth does take time. And it's fascinating, you often read in Paul's letters a drive to focus on Christ and Christ's word no matter what. So for instance, 2 Timothy, right? Paul's letter right before he's martyred. Chapter 3, verse 12 to 17. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. A verse that you'll never hear Joel Osteen preach on. <laughs> if you live righteously, you will suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But... Continue thou, continue in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Right? No matter what, don't stop pursuing God. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, so this growth in pursuing God tied directly to scripture, uh, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Then you go to chapter four, verses five through eight. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I now, I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. So he's like, I know I'm about to be martyred, okay? And then what does he say? I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course and I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not only to me, but unto all them that love his appearing. Remember that 2 Timothy was Paul's final letter just before being executed. And what are basically his final words to Timothy, a young pastor and a close friend? 
to just summarize it, what does he tell him? Don't you ever, ever stop pursuing God. And what does he tie it directly to? Actually, a pursuit of Scripture, growing in your relationship with God by pursuing. And I actually say that because, remember, it ties directly into what Kenny just talked about two weeks ago in our, our personal study life of Scripture. Uh, it's critical for our growth and victory as believers. It's not just read your Bible because that's what a good Christian does. It's read your Bible because you need it, because you need God, and that's how we, that's how we learn. It also ties into prayer, that personal communication and connection with God. Um, so again, we're going to circle back in conclusion these two points of application. I'm going to start really with the question of repentance because it's one that, of course, none of us can afford to ignore. The question is, have you truly repented? Have you believed and been changed by Christ? Do you know him personally? Have you put your faith in and surrendered your life completely to Christ? Because again, that's not a question that any of us can ignore. But we take this another step and we say, if you are saved, I actually want to challenge you with something. Don't ever forget the miracle of salvation in your own life and in the life of others. Have you ever, uh, have you ever stopped and just thought like, where would I be right now if God hadn't intervened in my life when he did? Have you ever just thought about that? You look at maybe your life and weaknesses and, and maybe things, failures, whatever. But have you ever just stopped and thought, man, where would I be if God hadn't intervened in my life? That really is a question we should never stop asking. Not to guilt trip, but to draw us back to him and what he's done on our behalf. Why, uh, why we should keep that in front of us. It, we shouldn't minimize any testimony of God's salvation. Uh, to go back to the idea of an origin story, every origin story of God's redemption is an example of God's love and should be celebrated. That's one of the reasons we pray for the salvation of friends and family on Wednesday nights uh, and know your Bible, the adults do, because we want to see that happen and we want to celebrate like we should when it does happen. Never cease to praise God for the redemption of your soul and never cease asking him to work in the lives of those around you to draw them to him. And even on that note, don't ever give up on people. Because remember, Saul was not anybody that anybody would have picked to be who he became. So I say that as a side note, but an important side note. So put a star next to it. Uh, side note, star side note. Don't ever stop reaching. Don't ever stop praying. Don't ever stop jumping on opportunities that God gives you to reach people in your circle of influence. Now you look at the early parts of Paul's life and no one again would have guessed that what God was going to do. Be patiently committed to the process of growth in your life. And that's the key thing we're trying to walk away with this morning. We often think of Saul's conversion as an immediate change, but he had to grow into the man that could boldly take the persecutions and hardships that he did later on. Over time, God took that passion and zeal and turned it into a man who would never back down from his testimony, even after or while facing execution, like we saw in 2 Timothy. But remember, it took time for him to become that. Now, what is again, what does that have to do with being patient, being patient in growth? Now, remember, last, the last two weeks, right, of spiritual boot camp, why has Kenny challenged us 
all to pursue daily time in God's word? Why has he challenged us to grow our knowledge and our skill set in studying and digging into God's word? Why challenge us to take a few minutes, remember last week, take a few minutes every hour and praise God to seek his guidance and strength hourly throughout your day? Why give those challenges? Because if you're going to grow, if you're going to change, if you're going to progress, it does take time, it takes effort, and it takes daily consistency. Remember that consistency is the difference between sporadic growth and steady growth. I'm going to say that again. Consistency is the difference between sporadic growth and steady growth. Sometimes what you hear is this like, I I mean, I did this for two weeks. I showed up to this for like a month. I read this. I I did this for a month, a couple weeks, a couple months, and nothing's changed. Consistency not just I did it for a window, it's the consistency of pursuing God, as Kenny says, in scripture and in prayer and other ways, of course, we'll talk about. But it is the consistency that is the difference between sporadic growth and steady growth. So what does that have to do with patience? Patience in growth is consistency. You practice patience in your growth process by being consistent. Not saying, I did this, so show me the money, right? It's, I'm going to do this and I'm going to die doing this (laughs) in a good way, you know, like positive. I'm going to consistently do, pursue God the way that I'm supposed to, because that's how we practice patience by being consistent. So as we wrap up Paul's origin story, we do find throughout his life that Paul actually mentions these times throughout his life, um, but they were always something that drew him back to the grace and mercy of God. So in conclusion, we just put it this way. Although his decisions and failures were things that he never forgot, they always drew him to the grace and mercy of God, remembering who he was before Christ intervened in his life. Every story of true repentance is a testament to the grace and mercy and love of God that Remember, we practice patience with growth by pursuing a consistent study and prayer life each day of our lives. Never cease to praise God for his redeeming work in your life. And never forget to ask yourself, where would I be if God had not intervened in my life? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And even sometimes in familiar things, we, we lose the perspective of who you are. And, and really what you've done on our behalf. I pray first that, Lord, you would speak to the heart of anyone here um, who has not come to you in faith, that has not repented and, and surrendered their life to you, that you would um, weigh it on their hearts, Lord, in a good way and draw them to you, um, to who you are and what you've done, Father, on the cross and resurrecting. I pray that you'd help us as believers to never lose sight of the miracle of salvation in our own lives and also never cease to praise you uh, for the change that you initiate, Lord, that you are the source of in our lives, that we would remember uh, where we could have been without you and we would ceaselessly praise you for that. Help us to patiently seek growth in our life, um, to be consistent, not to do and do and demand, Lord, but that we would seek you consistently in a humble heart of love and compassion and a desire to know you more and to walk closer with you each day. Uh, Pray for our pastor that you would continue to heal him and just giving the doctor's wisdom in dealing with that and pray uh, that you would just take care of us uh, and drive us to you no matter what it takes. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.